Welcome, everyone, to Bulldog Bites, practical tips for busy GCs. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a partner in Womble Carlisle's business litigation practice group. With me today as our guest is John Grupp, Associate General Counsel with Husqvarna. Prior to joining Husqvarna earlier this year, John has served in several roles with industrial manufacturer Ingersoll Rand. Before that, he was a partner at Parker Poe for nine years, where we got to know each other. I'm glad to have John here as someone that both practiced in private practice doing some litigation work and is now in-house. John, thanks a lot for coming today. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Great. John, I know litigation's been a focus of your career um, when you were in private practice. Now you're in a little different role in-house. Tell me, though, before we get into, we want to talk today about kind of managing outside counsel. Tell me a little bit about your career path, kind of the move in-house and how that's, what that's meant for you, why you decided to go that route. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I was with Parker Poe for a fairly long period of time, and toward the end of my year's at Parker Poe, I was doing a little more commercial business counseling with some of my clients, not so much focused on one-off litigations or even maybe some litigations that had multiple pieces that had been going on for a while. And I became interested in being a little bit more involved in the business side of the client and seeing how things were going on maybe before an event or litigation and then how things were going on after a litigation. And so I, I became interested in that. And then I was fortunate that the uh, opportunity to move in-house at Ingersoll Rand presented itself where I could still be involved in litigation. I didn't have to relocate. And it was a company with a fantastic reputation, great products. And so I, I thought to myself, if I didn't make the move at that time, when the circumstances seemed to line up as good as they could, I would probably later on regret that decision or be looking back and saying, gosh, I wish I had tried that. Um, in your roles, first at Ingersoll Rand and now at Husqvarna, do you get into court at all, or is it now basically managing litigation work being done by others? It's a little bit of both. It depends. Um, if there's a court-ordered settlement conference or particular hearings that require either myself being present or someone from the legal team being present, it does give me an opportunity to get to court. But it's definitely not as you would imagine, as often as when I was in private practice. And so that is one of the things that I, I do miss a little bit. I can tell you a little bit of a funny story, if you'd like. The very first mediation I went to, it wasn't in court, but it was a mediation when I was with Ingersoll Rand, and I was there on behalf of the company. I got to the mediation and went right into, <laughs> here I am, let's go mediate. I forgot that I was the client. I pretended to be oh, the wow. lawyer. And he's like, listen, you're the client. You do it how you want to do it. Right. But it sort of made me realize that I am in a different role when you mm. go in-house. And you know, we hire great lawyers to represent us. And if you're going to hire them, you have to trust them to do their job, right? <laughs> so anyway, it was an interesting transition. Yeah, no, that's fun. Well, and that lawyer obviously had some good client skills because he followed rule number one, which is the client's always right. <laughs> that's if you, exactly If you right. want to do the opening presentation, you can. Right, uh, right. But no, that's that's fun, and that's an interesting um, it's an interesting transition. I know for most of the general counsel I work with, the majority come from a transactional background. Right. And certainly, I haven't done a scientific study, but if I look at the people that go in-house from Womble Carlisle, for example, I think more of our transactional folks go in-house than litigators. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was for those folks out there that have never been in court or don't know litigation, maybe give them some guidance on how to manage it, because that is a part of a lot of GC's roles. Right. 
what would you say to an in-house counsel, maybe at a smaller company that doesn't have the, the luxury of having multiple lawyers that can wear different hats? What would you say to those GCs about the approach? Let's talk generally about the approach to managing litigation. And then I've got some specific questions on how to take different pieces of that process. Sure. Well, I think first and foremost, you have to retain counsel that you trust and are comfortable with. If you don't have a trust and a comfortable confidence in that relationship, it's going to end in a way that's not going to be very favorable or pleasing to you probably at the end of the day, or more importantly, your business partners. If you are not familiar with litigation, I would actually recommend reaching out to some of your colleagues in the uh, in-house world, either through the ACC organization or the local corporate counsel bar sections, and try to find someone you know and talk with them to say, either if it's a particular type of litigation, any tips, advice, but just try to do some homework outside the matter to get a little more comfortable with the process. It can be fairly daunting if you've never done litigation before, as you know from practicing, and I'm sure you've worked with a number of clients who may not be very aware of litigation, and you have to almost educate yourself because at the end of the day, you're not only working with your outside counsel, but more importantly, you're the liaison to the business folks. And you have to make sure that your internal client, either the president, CEO, finance leaders, whoever you might be interacting with, that they understand what's going on in the lawsuit. And if you don't know what's going on, you're not going to be able to adequately communicate. And then the worst thing that can happen is you have surprises, especially of a financial nature. Right. Also, people that don't know anything about litigation can be shocked by the whole process of discovery. Right. What do you mean I have to turn over my emails? What do you mean I'm going to be asked questions under oath by a lawyer? Right. And so I think that you raise a good point because I know as I work with clients, that's often kind of a surprise. They know generally litigation's out there, but until they're, you know, the day before the deposition doing that prep is really the oh my God moment where they're like, this is really going to happen. I'm really going to have to talk about right. this stuff. They're really going to show me an email I wrote four years ago where I didn't use the best language. That's right. You know, one of the other things, as you were talking, I was thinking about is if you're not familiar with litigation or with the process, talk to your counsel at the very beginning and just say, what is your expectation for how this may go? Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainties and it's not meant to hold your outside counsel to a set plan or a set budget or something of that nature where if you vary at all, you know, you're going to hit them over the knuckles with a ruler or something. But just to get an idea, okay, you know the jurisdiction we're in, you know the outside counsel or the opposing counsel we're dealing with. Let's say, how does this play out? You know, what do you see over the next 12 to 18 months? And again, it goes back to if you trust and feel comfortable with your outside counsel, they'll give you an idea of what will happen And then again, you're starting to educate yourself, you're feeling a little bit more comfortable, and then you can maybe communicate with your internal client. This is something where, and for the first couple of months, it's not going to be that busy, but then we're going to have a period of discovery and we're going to be taking some folks off the line, whether it's people in HR or finance or engineering operations, depending on what the matter is. And then we could have a trial come 12, 18, 24 months, whatever the time frame is. Right. Let me go back to that first point about finding counsel you trust. How do you go about selecting litigation counsel? Again, I think a lot of companies may get sued once a year, some once every 10 years, which is good for them, but it also means finding litigation counsel can be new and scary proposition. So what process do you use or what tips would you give to folks out there to find litigators that you can trust? Right. I think there are a number of resources out there I go back to what I mentioned, I think, earlier. If you know people in the in-house world or even 
folks you may have worked with before, because of my background, I'm fortunate to know some lawyers across the country. And so if I'm in a jurisdiction where our company may not have counsel, I can call someone who I know or someone who I know may have practiced in an area, maybe someone who's worked at a law firm that's regional counsel or national counsel on some other matters. But, you know, calling other in-house lawyers and asking them, are you familiar with anyone who works in this particular jurisdiction for this type of matter? There's also some resources through the National ACC organization. It's like a blog spot or you can post a question and say, I'm looking for counsel to do this type of matter in this particular state or city or county or whatever the case may be. And people will actually respond and give you some names. I do recommend, though, that you try to get a few recommendations and then talk to them. If you can, meet them in person. You want to make sure that they are the right folks for you, that you feel like you can work with them because it's just going to be critically important. So I don't know if that fully answered no, I your think question. That, that's helpful. Okay. Do you actually interview proposed counsel in your position? Do you say, okay, we've narrowed it down to three. We're going to meet with them. Do you ever use RFPs or other formal processes? I know that, again, for transactional work that's sometimes used, it can be tough with litigation, particularly with short deadlines. Usually you're looking at 20 to 30 days after you get served with a lawsuit. Obviously, if you have the plaintiff, you may have a little more time to prepare. But do you have an organized process where you're looking at multiple choices? Or is it more a matter of, I got a good referral? I'll talk to them if I like them. You know, I'll go. Yes. No. (laughs) Um, It's a little bit of both. It really, part of it does depend on how much time you have. Again, if I can meet with folks, I certainly like to, but that's not always possible. So if I can have a uh, extended conversation with them where I can maybe just talk about their experience, how they may handle the case. I have not done the formal RFP process for retaining counsel for a litigation mainly because typically there's not enough time to turn it around. Um, I've been fortunate at both Ingersoll Rand and Husqvarna that there have been law firms that have been working with the companies for a period of time that have a lot of good knowledge, they have great lawyers, and so it's made that process a lot easier. I think if you can have a conversation with someone at a minimum, the folks you're looking at, I think you get a pretty good feel for them. Again, you hate to say this, but for better or worse, if it's not working out, You can't be afraid to say it's not working out. And then if you are going to change counsel in the middle of a case, you would have a little bit more time, I would think, to make that decision. Obviously, no one ever wants to go that path, both for the law firm or for in-house counsel. But it's like anything. If it's not working, it's probably not working for the law firm either. And so it's probably in both sides' best interest to then move on. How do you handle fee discussions? Is the litigation all done on an hourly basis? Do you generally negotiate that fee at the outset? And what role, if any, do you use for litigation budgets? And when do those come in? Budgets are, I would say, critically important. In fact, they probably have more importance. I recognize they have more importance now in the in-house world than when I was in private practice. I mean, I think everyone knows budgets are important. You want to stick Mm -hmm. to budget. I think, though, that in the private practice world, I was very concerned with the uncertainties of the litigation and how it could go and and how difficult it sometimes could be to really set a budget. But the reality is, in all of my experiences, the business really does use the budget to say, okay, this is what we're looking to spend over the next 12, 18, 24 months, whatever the length of the case may be. And so budgeting is very important. So what I tend to do in the beginning of a case, if there's an opportunity to negotiate an alternative fee arrangement, not for the whole lawsuit, but maybe for a phase 
or a certain item. You know, if we can do that, that's great. I love to hear ideas and creativity from the law firms in that regard. But more often than not, it is an hourly fee basis. And so we look for a budget and then they're submitted. We look at them. And if I see something that looks like it's going to be too low or as shockingly as this may <laughs> sound, if I, if you know, high or low, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll talk. I mean, I don't want to submit a low budget if I think it's not going to be realistic. And then in 12 months, go back and say, aha, I got you. You know, I'm not a big gotcha guy. So I want it to be fair for both of us so that in 12 months, I don't have to revisit it with my business folks to say, we got a budget and it wasn't right. And now we have to look at it. So I try to work with our council as best I can to come up with a budget that we both feel is fair to both of us, that's realistic and practical for how we think the case may go. No, I think that's a great tip. And, you know, in my experience, it's much more likely you're going to go over than under. And clients, at least on the business side, are always amazed at how expensive mm-hmm. litigation costs. And I think that's a that's a challenge that we all have to deal with. But the reality is, particularly the discovery and particularly with e-discovery in federal court, you're going to spend a lot of money gathering, reviewing documents, analyzing stuff. Depositions aren't cheap. It can be a long and expensive process. Right. And I don't think business folks are always ready right. for that. So they may not not like the news, but it's better to get it now and say, hey, this is going to be $300,000 than for them to think that this is routine, no big deal, and get sticker shock right. six months in or 12 months in when they see That's what right. the bills actually look like. You know, and related to that, a tip I would add is, you know, if you're someone who is being interviewed or you've been retained and you're working through a budget, don't be afraid to outline, you know, discovery could be this. Here are some ideas we have to maybe help you mitigate that cost by working with a vendor or a review service, or internally we have a certain group of folks who can work with us in document review. But don't just necessarily put a number out there. If you think you've really worked hard to come up with a number that is fair and distinguishes you maybe from some other folks, help the inside lawyer know how you got there and what you're doing, because it shows you care. It shows you're thinking. You're not just, here's another case and plug it into the formula, off we go. It shows you're really trying to work with the client to come up with a budget that is fair to the client as well. I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the relationship between inside and outside counsel in terms of how often you're talking, what kind of decisions you make versus what kind of decisions they make. And I'll say having practiced for 26 years, I've experienced a pretty wide range uh, of folks that just say, I don't know anything about litigation. Go get the best result you can. (laughs) And and I'll talk to them in 12 months uh, to others that are on the phone every week and every decision. We're discussing every objection to every interrogatory with the in-house counsel to make sure that their views are, you know, are there. So I think there's a range, but some of that I think comes from an uncertainty at the in-house level about what am I supposed to be doing? So someone that's focused on litigation, what do you tend to do? What do you think works best in terms of that allocation of role? How much do you get involved in some of those decisions? What are the things that you think it's important as an in-house person to kind of have a hand on the wheel? Right. I probably err on being more involved than most, for better or for worse, (laughs) for the lawyers I work with. Um, But, you know, I view, back when I was in private practice, I was working with a lawyer from another law firm in the Midwest, and they had a client. And I thought their approach, it it really stuck with me, and it's something that I try to bring when I was practicing in private practice and in the in-house world. I view all of us as kind of a mini law firm working on the case. Mm. And so while, yes, I'm the in-house lawyer and you may be my outside lawyer, 
we're a team. We're working together. And so I'm active, and I hope it's not considered too overwhelming or intrusive by counsel I work with, but I feel like if we're communicating more than less, there's going to be no surprises. They're going to know what I'm looking for. They're going to know what they're looking for. And frankly, we can talk in a way where, I mean, I tell all my lawyers, if I say, let's do something and you think it's terrible or it's not the right approach or this judge may tell us no, I want them to say, John, time out. No, that's not the approach we need to use. We need to go this way. So I tend to be pretty involved. Now, I'm not going to, I, I don't do the drafting. I don't have the resources or the people to do that, but I do look over answers. I do look over discovery responses. If I think there aren't the right objections, I'll raise it. But, you know, again, I don't raise it in a, how come you didn't do this? It's more of a, I think we should do this. Is there a reason you didn't? I I like to engage in the discussion. And as I work with someone more, I think I become more comfortable. I feel comfortable being less I don't want to say less involved, but less in the weeds maybe is a better description. And so in the beginning, when I'm working with someone I haven't worked with, I'll review briefs, I'll give comments. And then as they know what I'm thinking and I know their approach, it just, the process seems to get smoother and more efficient and I don't have to be as involved. Does that make sense? It does. I think it's a great tip really because, and I don't always see that. And maybe it's because we both come from a larger firm background. I mean, I firmly believe that some of the best product is a joint product. Like, you know, when I'm working on a big case, I like to get the whole team together. You know, it's partner and associate and paralegal and anybody else. And let's talk about strategy and put our minds together. One nice thing about working at a firm with a lot of good lawyers is we got a lot of bright people. And I know that's what you've had that experience too. And so the idea of we make better better decision collectively. Let's all be part of it. Let's talk through what we want to do. What do we want to accomplish with this deposition? What is our game plan for summary judgment? I I do. I think that's how you reach the best decisions as opposed to just you decide and I'll give you a yes, no. So right. I think I, I'd urge our listeners to follow that advice because I do think you have a lot to add. I enjoy it when I have clients that are more engaged because they bring that business perspective and understanding. And while we always focus on trying to understand our client's business well, we're not going to understand as much as someone that's living there every day. So that perspective, and obviously you have the added benefit of bringing some trial Mm -hmm. (laughs) experience to know what things might look like or how things may go. I think that's great. And I think that's a valuable tip. And and you can also help each other avoid avoidable situations, right? When you're in private practice, you may think a certain strategy from the legal perspective, it might be fantastic, but there could be some other factors that you just don't know about relating to business relationships or prior history or other things. And so if you're not having that collaborative approach, you may not know about it. And then you may take a step that in hindsight, gosh, had I known, I wouldn't have done it. And so Mm -hmm. if you, again, if you have those lines of communication open, I think you tend to flush a lot of that out. Yeah. No, I think that's great advice. We talked a little bit about costs and budgeting and management. I'm wondering if you've got any specific tips about ways that maybe other in-house counsel could save money on litigation or work, because obviously legal spend is a big focus at all departments. It is. Everyone's got a limited amount of money and everyone, right. all their bosses are telling them, we've got to cut it down. You know, They don't view law departments not generally a revenue generator. Once in a while, a big plaintiff's case may fall in that category, but for the most part, it's a cost that everyone right. wants to cut. So any tips in giving your years of practice that you want to pass along to your fellow GCs? 
Um, yeah. You know, well, or outside counsel. Yeah, but I, I think most of our listeners, both. you know, mo- more are of our in-house. listeners are in house. Yep. But either way, I guess as an outside counsel, I'd welcome your tips right. too because I'm right. trying to. I do want to save clients money. Uh, you know, I have found again if you're involved in the process and you're active where you know what's going on, when you look at a bill, you'll be able to say, does that seem fair or not? Because again, you know what's going on. I think if you work with your outside counsel to let them know what some of your goals are, you know, what is a win? What's success? A win isn't always pummeling the other side into submission and, you know, you're waving the victory flag. Right. A settlement may be good or the timing may be appropriate. So I think just sitting down with your outside counsel, letting them know what you're trying to accomplish will help them lay out a plan. And then again, you you obviously talk about your budget, but you know, there are certain things that if you can do inside in-house, that's great. If you can help with some of the discovery of gathering documents, gathering information, you know, you may have the relationships, you can help minimize some of the cost working with third-party vendors on the e-discovery platform. I mean, I think, you know, obviously there's been a lot of discussion about that over time, but doing your part and organizing your documents and files so you're not just doing a massive document dump on your outside counsel who then has to cull through it so that you can make the proper production. To me, that's where the biggest, I mean, let's all be honest, the biggest driver of litigation costs these days is discovery. Sure. You know, I think both inside counsel and private practice need to approach it together. And so what can we do in-house? Make sure our documents are organized. Make sure we're doing, you know, we can do some of the internal interviews of custodians to identify the right custodians rather than giving our outside counsel a list of 30 people when maybe it's only five. If we can do that homework, talk to the people, identify the right people, we can help make our outside counsel more efficient. I think most folks have billing guidelines making sure that those are reflective of what you're trying to do and also doing evaluations throughout the case. I think that is Mm. something that is very helpful. I mean, it doesn't have to be every quarter, whatever your timing is, but sitting down with your outside counsel, if it's every quarter or twice a year or whatever period you like, just say, Hey, what's going on? Where are we going with this? Any changes to the budget, anything going on, having that discussion, I think can be helpful because the worst thing that can happen is, the case is filed in 12 months. Here we are. Right. And you, you don't know how you got there. And then again, you can't explain to your internal clients right. how we got there. Just the whole team looks bad, you and your outside counsel. And I think those kinds of things can be avoided. When you said evaluations, you're talking about case evaluations. Yes. For a minute, I thought you were talking about evaluations of outside counsel, which is something which I've wondered about. I mean, obviously, a lot of firms do internal evaluations, both of individuals and sometimes business units. I can say I don't think I've ever received a formal evaluation as outside counsel. We do client surveys, so we get mm-hmm. some of that data. Do you provide And I guess what suggestions would you have for providing feedback to outside counsel in terms of things you like, things you don't like? Right. In terms of like the formal evaluations, I have not seen that, but I've heard more of it. And Mm. I think I would be surprised if it doesn't happen more. And I think it'd be great. I mean, honestly, I would view it as an opportunity to sit down and you sort of do maybe a snapshot of the prior year's cases and say, this is what we thought went well. This is where we thought there was room for improvement. But what could we do better? Mm-hmm. How could we have improved? Or what did we do that may have made it difficult for you? Or were we not clear? Because, again, going back to the we're all part of this team, if you can't have that discussion, 
that's more reflective of your relationship. What I try to do, though, on individual cases, I talk with my whoever the lead person may be on a case. If there's something going on that I don't like, I don't just whack the bill. I'll call the lawyer up and say, I'd like to better understand what's going on here. Why is so-and-so doing this instead of maybe someone who's at a more appropriate rate, in my view? And then oftentimes we'll talk about it and, hey, you're right. Or, no, the reason we did that is because of this. That's great. Now I know and I feel more comfortable with it. It shows, again, that the person was thinking about adequately assigning the case and importance and things of that nature. So I try to do it in an ongoing dialogue with my folks. And then at the end of the case, if things go well, I've actually invited counsel back in at the end of a case to sit down with the business and say, hey, you know, these are the guys who helped us get where we were, and here we are. Now, if it doesn't go well, I don't think I'd bring, <laughs> bring him in, in for that Bring regard. him in and uh, right. hand out the food. Uh, you know, right. Go ahead, take your shots now. The Game these of Thrones are, These uh, are the guys scenario. that watch it. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, you know, again, I, I'm a big believer in if I'm going to do a good job for my client, I need folks to be doing a good job for me. And if they are, I like the business to know that so that, you know, they, they know that. And then if there are other mm-hmm. opportunities, you know, who knows? Maybe we keep working together and that relationship continues to build. Great. Those are great suggestions. As an outside counsel, I'd love to see that more. Mm-hmm. Often, you're so busy working on whatever comes next, we don't often sit back and think, okay, that's over. How did it go? Um, right. You know, often you get a verdict, you get a decision, and you're, you're running to the next case. And so that's a good, right. that's a really good tip because I think that you could learn a lot by saying, how did we get here? What did we learn? Kind of a lessons learned I think thing right. that, that our business folks do better than we do as law firms. Right. We don't do a lot. Of I that. think the unfortunate reality is obviously law, nobody wants to be sued. So when you're talking about litigation and lawsuits, it's usually not the most positive. Right discussion or the, you know, the atmosphere around it. And so when something's over, that's not good. You try to move on. Right. right. But, but the reality is if you're getting sued once every couple of years, okay, I Mm -hmm. get it. But if you're in a place where you have the reality is you are being sued and you have to defend cases on a routine basis, I think you're not doing yourself or your client a service as an inside lawyer. If you're not at the end of a matter or the end of, you know, maybe six months looking back at your matters, evaluating what went right, what went wrong with outside counsel and also with yourself. Right. Yeah. Great. No, that's good. I, I'm curious. It sounds like if I could summarize kind of what you've been talking about a lot of is is confidence and finding confidence in the outside counsel. And you guys kind of hit on this, but but I would love to hear from you a bit more about at the front end. So when you're getting, you know, first gauging whether or not you want to engage that outside counsel and then during that process, what are the things that the temperature taking that you're doing to kind of go, these guys, I'm going to go with them. And then once you're in it, what are you looking for to go, okay, I can sleep okay tonight. Like I, these guys are taking care of me. Like what, what kinds of things in your experience are a good canary in the well kind right. of? I would say there are a few things. I mean, certainly you have to be competent and know how to do the job. I mean, that's sort of the baseline, right? But one of the things we talked about with maybe the approach, I want someone to show to me that they're thinking about this particular matter. They're not just putting it into a cookie cutter mold and saying, okay, here are a couple of approaches we can take to this. You know, we can be super aggressive. We can be aggressive. We can work around, you know, whatever the approach may be, but let's have a discussion about how we're going to do it. And then in the course of that discussion, I think you, at least I, I start to learn more about the lawyer and what their approach is and how they're handling it. Are they willing to 
take constructive feedback and criticism from me? Are they willing to give it to me? If I feel like I can get in a dialogue with them and they're keeping me informed, I mean, you know, the cardinal sins, surprises are just terrible for everyone. Giving me a brief at three o'clock that needs to be filed at five o'clock when you know I want to review it. You know, I'm not the client who says, just go ahead and file it. Those sorts of things are very frustrating. And so I'll call the person and say, we got to do a better job. And as crazy as it sounds, I guarantee you there are people listening to this who say, I know exactly what you're talking about. It happens more than you think, which is really unfortunate because it's really not necessary. But I don't know if that really answers the question, but it's more, it's not something I can sort of put my finger on. It's because I try to be active and involved and I talk to my outside counsel a lot. I feel like I get a pretty good feel of, does someone understand my approach and, and again, I'm not going to necessarily say just because we may not have the same approach or we may not be the same person, that doesn't mean I'm not going to use you, but I have to feel comfortable that even though we approach it differently, I know you're going to get the best result for me that you can. It makes me think about that, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but the writer for the rock band, and I can't remember if it's, you know, if it was Kiss or the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or whomever, but the story is that one of these, you know, huge bands they had in their writer that they only wanted green M&Ms in their uh, dressing rooms. That that was it. And if not, they would not play. So it would completely cancel, <laughs> mm-hmm. cancel the contract. And it, that was a big thing. Like, oh, all these prima donnas, you know, they're crazy, whatever, demands, whatever. The story goes that actually <laughs> that was their uh, manager who was like, no, I want to make sure, I want to be able to walk in instantly and visually tell whether or not someone paid attention right. to what was in there, in that document to make sure that we're getting taken care of and that all the other important details have been covered and are aware of. And I think that that's kind of your point too, is that, yeah, there's probably going to be in a lot of instances a, this is the kind of tried and true way to approach this, but you like to have someone come in and say, I've thought about this beyond just the tried and true. Here's tried and true, but here's option B and option C too. Right. Because I care and I've thought about it. Right. I agree. And I'm I, more of a peanut M&M right. guy. <laughs> well, and let's I, let's say what I, maybe is the implicit message, right? There are a lot of hard-nosed litigators out there that kind of have a my way or the highway approach that I know how to win the case and I've done this a hundred times. Most of them are, I'm going to go full steam ahead. I'm just going to be that tough guy. And sometimes they like that reputation. And I think that what I'm hearing you say, and what I certainly think is true is you need someone that's going to work with you and be able to think about different approaches because there are cases where that we're just going to fight on everything kind of scorched earth makes sense. But in today's world, in most business cases, that's actually not the most productive Mm -hmm. approach. And if a lawyer's not willing to change their style and figure out what the client wants, they're not going to do a good job for the client. You don't want to necessarily just go out and hire the guy with the reputation who's really obnoxious, who you can't talk to, but has a reputation about being difficult. Because I don't, don't, and as you know, that's not my style, but I don't think it's a very effective style for most businesses. And you need to be flexible. You need to be able to understand the objectives and how you're going to get there. Sometimes that means being tough. Sometimes it means being conciliatory. Sometimes it means an unusual approach. Right. I also think there may be a time when for the first six months of a case, you do need to be very aggressive. It could be something that is very critical or important to the business, or there could be some factors that require a very tough guy approach. And that's fine. 
it's just, that's great, but what's the end result? Are we doing it to get to something that we collectively think is that's how we get there or not? You know, or are we just doing it because that's how we always do it? Right. We may not be able to get the most favorable ruling or settlement or whatever outcome we're looking for if we don't go hard. Because sometimes, you know, the reality is in litigation, sometimes you have to punch someone in the nose. And sometimes you're going to— That's right. But sometimes you need to go through that a little bit to get there. But that doesn't mean we're doing it just because we do it. We're doing it because it's actually an intentional— I like to be intentional and deliberate in my strategy, right? And so, to your point, it may be the way that you think, but let's talk about it and make sure that's the right one. Right. Right. And you don't want to hire someone that just, I'm punching him in the nose because that's what I know how to do. Right. And I'm, I don't know anything else. Right. That's not who serves you best and really be the collaborative team player right. that I think you want in litigation. Um, I think those are great tips. My, my last question is when I try to ask various guests, which is, how do you see the role of in-house counsel changing? And this may be beyond just litigation. I think it's been a fascinating time where, in general, a lot of the outside law is either shrinking or staying the same. More work is being brought in-house. I'm interested in kind of how you've seen that trend. And if you were using a crystal ball, and I know some of the ACC conferences and stuff talk about this, you know, what's on the horizon three, five years down the road? What do you see coming from your perspective? Right. You know, from the litigation side, I mean, the reality is, we're always going to need lawyers in the jurisdictions, right? And so the relationship between in-house counsel and private practice, outside counsel, that's always going to be there. We need to know that and then develop those relationships, right? I do think companies are focusing more on the legal spend and tasking in-house lawyers with how do we, the in-house lawyers, manage that budget, mitigate, reduce legal spend. And so, I mean, again, there's a lot in the literature, but there is a a pressure on the in-house counsel that I don't know if that was true 20 years ago or not. Maybe it wasn't. Um, I would love to be able to have a discussion about alternative fee arrangements where I feel comfortable and outside counsel feel comfortable. I mean, I know that's the rub on these. You know, when I was on both sides, someone always feels like, I don't know if we can really do this. And there's so much data out there now. I mean, I think that's one of the differentiating factors. There's so much data out there with law firms and with a lot of in-house companies that we should be able to sit down and figure out within a range what most of the lawsuits are going to cost. There's going to be the outliers, both high and low, and we get that. And if you're working with someone more than just on the one-off case, because I get that too, but there has to be a way to bring a little more certainty to the budgeting process. I mean, that's the big driver. The business wants to have some certainty in an uncertain environment about the spend. And so if collectively we can work on that, and I think more people feel that pressure, it's going to have to spill over to the law firms. I mean, I don't think the relationship is necessarily going to change. We're always going to be working together, but I think in-house departments are getting bigger because they think it's easier to manage some of the costs with own lawyers. Now, I think certain areas, like maybe specialized areas of ERISA or things like that, it probably does make more sense to hire someone who's an expert rather than keep them on your internal staff. So I think a lot of the things that you're seeing are just going to get a little more prominent and a little more momentum, I think, in the next three to five years. Right. 
Well, that's great. You're preaching to the choir. As listeners know, as a litigator, I'm committing to providing alternative fees for any case. And I've done it for clients, including million-dollar cases, where I've said, we will give you a flat fee. It may be a monthly fee. You know, pay us $50,000 a month, and we'll handle that case for as long as it lasts. Or we'll give you a significant discount on hourly rates, and then some kind of either a success kicker at the end, where we make it up based on the results, or kind of a budget performance. So, and that's a nice hybrid that I have used with some clients where we're both a little nervous about just saying, okay, $500,000 for the whole case, right? We don't know when's it going to settle. We'll say, well, we'll give you a budget by phase. And if we go, if we say $100,000 for discovery and it costs $120,000, we'll eat half of that overage. If we can do it for eighty dollars because I'm efficient, we get an extra, we'll, we'll split the savings and give us ten. And that, it does a good job, I think, of realigning stuff. And we've talked a you know, mm-hmm. little bit about that right. before, but I think that I, I do think that's the wave of the future because there's got to be a way to try to get at least some predictability and control over cost because that's the continues to be the sore point with business folks where they're like, how can I give you a legal budget if you can't tell me how much I'm going to need to spend? And it's messing up all our financials when we got an extra half million dollars over here on legal fees that we didn't expect. Right. I would also, uh, just related to that, it's not about where we're going, but one other tip we've talked about, you can't be afraid as an in-house lawyer to talk to your outside counsel if you see something that's going on in terms of the budget. You know, if you're starting to go above budget or your first half of the year, second half of the year, or you have to be able to feel comfortable talking to someone. Or if you think something costs too much, call them, find out. And I think, again, at the end of the day, you're enhancing leadership. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was in private practice, I would be happy to talk to a client about the budget or what's going on because yeah. it just helps. It's another touch point to be aligned. And so the more touch points you as an inside counsel have, I think it's better. And for those who aren't in the litigation world, sort of that budget status is where you're going to get your touch points. Right. I think that's great. And it goes back to, if I had to capitalize a theme, right, it's it's that regular communication. You can't Agreed. just say, okay, you're my outside counsel and turn them loose. Let me know when you get a settlement offer. It really is a team process, and, and that communication is going to result in a much better process that you can feel comfortable with talking to the business folks and your outside counsel knows, hey, this is what they want to achieve. So you're right. going to get a better reaction. We did get one question from our audience members. And again, I thank folks for sending in. This is something we've talked about already, which relates to discovery. The question is, what role should in-house counsel play in discovery, specifically collecting and reviewing documents? Should we do it ourselves or is that best handled outside? And I will say that that's an area where I've seen a range. Again, smaller companies may not have the resources. Bigger companies may say, we're going to hire a third-party vendor to do all that collection. And sometimes now there are a bunch of third-party firms that can do document review. Our firm's got our own Bulldogs group that does a lot of document review. The companies you've worked with are in that range where you've got some in-house capability. So I'm interested in your approach. What, What areas... Do you do? And maybe you've touched on, I think, some of the collection and organizing. That's Mm -hmm. a great tip. You have thoughts? I mean, do you guys do any document review where you would actually be doing any coding? Is that something you, your outside folks do? Do you generally get a vendor to do some of that coding, one of these uh, outside service providers? What what approaches have you used on discovery and discovery management? And, And it's been a little bit of, or a combination of those, I would say. There were folks up at Ingersoll Rand, at least, who, you know, they were certified in the discovery world, e-discovery world. And so they were very comfortable 
working with mm. either the vendors or the counterparts at law firms who also spoke that language. I mean, it right. really is its own language, right? Very true. Um, you know, it was nice to have someone like that who could help with it. And then I, I didn't do necessarily the reviewing. I mean, the reality is, again, you have to allocate your right. resources. And frankly, it was more efficient to either have a contract review group, either that the law firm had or that a, a third-party vendor had to do the actual review. But where I think you can help is working with the outside counsel on maybe the search terms or, again, to what I said before, gathering and collecting. I think the gathering and collecting inside counsel has to be involved because you're going to know just where things right. are. I mean, unless your outside counsel has been working with the company for a very long period of time and they know who the important people are, I think you have to be involved and give right direction to your outside counsel on where to go. So you can't ignore it. If you don't like it, then, you know, some people, I haven't done this, but some people have a law firm that does their e-discovery. Yep. And so that's an approach. I mean, I think you really have to look at what your litigation history and docket looks like. And I also think one of the themes I think is one size doesn't fit all. You may want a third-party vendor to come in and help you on a certain case, but on another case, you may be able to, it may only involve three or four vendors or three or four custodians. Now, you have to be careful. You're not, you're following all the rules that are out there about how you collect and assemble and the holds and all that. But for some of those smaller cases, in-house probably can drive it with a good paralegal or a good assistant or, you know, someone who is involved on the IT side. Often there's a partnership between legal and IT because the IT guys know how to get it. And so if you can work with them, give them the right search terms or identify the right custodians, obviously they can get it, help dedupe it, you know, if you have some of the tools so that you're, you're pulling together a set that is easier and more efficient for outside counsel than to review. Great. Know, that... No, that's very helpful. Okay. And I think, yes, I would agree. It's not a one-size-fits-all answer. You really need to look at the case. One thing I've started doing that I think a lot of my clients appreciate is I will actually provide them with login information to Relativity is what we use here, and that's probably the most widely right. used tool. And some of the counsel have never been in it before. They kind of know that what we're doing. But to actually see, look, this is how we actually code documents. This is the information you can do term searches, concept searches, my clients can actually go log in and look at that raw data. And at first I was a little nervous, like, oh, what are they going to do? Are they going to disagree? Because they say, why did you code it? That, you know, this isn't really that hurtful. I don't know how much time they spend looking at it, but I like doing it because it gives a sense of, they have an idea of what we're doing. When right. they just see that bill saying, our Bulldogs team has reviewed 100,000 documents and you're paying for it, you know, what do they get? And I think the ability to kind of log in and do the same things I'm doing, which is, let me let me look at some issues and set up witness folders and I'm trying to be efficient here and manage stuff and organize it. They can say, oh, well, there's value there. Right. It's not, I'm not just throwing money away. My outside counsel can use it and I as an inside counsel can use it. And sometimes they've been very helpful to say, Let's add this issue code, or I didn't know I could could search for that. And hey, I've done another search because I know that you know Mr. Smith might be involved, and his name popped up a hundred times. So right. I think that engagement again, it's don't be afraid to ask your outside counsel what tool are you using to review if stuff's getting coded. Can I get a login? Can I look? I think right. you know. And if they don't, if they won't let you in. You may think about call me. I'll let you. Um, but well, uh, if they don't let yeah, you in, yeah, that, that tells beg you something. The question, that right? tells you something that what what is it that they are not comfortable with right. you seeing? 
So again, it goes back to the teamwork, but I think it's a way. And again, sometimes people are uncomfortable. They're like, I don't, I don't know what that is. You know, e-discovery scary. Um, it can be expensive. It is a little scary. But if you get in and learn, the tools now have progressed to the stage where, my feeling, people can pick it up pretty quickly. A lot of it's pretty intuitive. You don't have to go to a day-long seminar to use relativity anymore because they're doing it with busy lawyers that they want to get up to speed. So for basic stuff, oh yeah, this is pretty pretty useful. So that right. that would be my tip. Thank you for that question um, from our audience. Um, I think it's time for the fun part of the uh, the podcast, right. which our now our listeners enjoy, which is the quiz. So, and um, here, since Husvarna is from Sweden and one of the great Sweden success stories, and I understand they've been around since 1689, which is a remarkable fact. Uh, when I looked it up, doing everything from motorcycles to solar-powered robot lawnmowers, so a fun company. I, I decided we would ask a few Sweden questions. So I don't All know. Right. Have you been to Sweden? before? I have not. I actually have relatives in Sweden, but I have not had the uh, privilege to get over there yet. All right. Well, maybe I would think that might be a perk of the job at some point. They'll bring you you over. Um, I've just been once on a short cruise stop, but it is beautiful country. All right. Zlatan Ibrahimovic, does that name ring a bell? He's arguably Sweden's most famous soccer star, having scored more goals for a national team than any other player. My question for you is, which of the following club teams did Ibranovic not play for? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Was it Manchester United, Real Madrid, or Paris Saint-Germain? Any idea? Hmm. Which did he not? So he played for two of the three. You have to identify the club he was not with. I'm going to go with uh, Madrid. Madrid! All right, how about that? Well done. Boy, pulled it out. (laughs) That's one I certainly would not have gotten. Thank you for our researchers on that question. It turns out that he played for rival team Barcelona. Okay. So, congratulations, 1-0 right now. All right. There are a total of four questions, so... I just need one more, and then I'm 50-50. That's right. (laughs) Question two, what Swedish-born star of the silver screen during the 1920s and 30s was nominated three times for Academy Award for Best Actress and is best known for her roles in films like Grand Hotel, Camille, and Mata Hari? Is it Greta Garbo, Tracy Ullman, or Katherine Hepburn? Swedish-born star. I'm going to say Greta Garbo. Greta Garbo! You got it! Congratulations! Two for two. I'm impressed. Again, these are fairly obscure... I think we've got a a perspective quiz champion here. Um, (laughs) So, all right. You've already hit that 50% mark, and you've still got two left to go, John. Swedish chemist, and and we've really covered the waterfront here. (laughs) You have. Swedish chemist and businessman Alfred Nobel is known today for the Nobel Prize Foundation he created in his will. Nobel's fortune was built on his creation of what? Was it A, the gas engine, B, dynamite, or C, vulcanized rubber? I'm going to say vulcanized rubber. Oh, I'm no. sorry. No, no, it's actually dynamite. Dynamite. Okay, that dynamite. was going to be second yeah, one. I know dy- it wasn't gas engines. Yeah, no, it was It was actually a creation of dynamite. How about All that? right. All right. All right, still two out of three. Question number four, our final question today. Right. You might not be surprised to learn that Swedish action movie star Dolph Lundgren, famous for his role as Celeste Stavone's opponent in Rocky IV, is a black belt and respected rock and roll drummer listed on Lundgren's CV is which of the following? A, an MIT Fulbright scholar, B, a trained physician, or C, a JD from Yale? Hmm. This is Dolph Lundgren. 
All it's right. a tough one. That is a tough one. I would not know. I actually just well. watched Rocky Four with my children. He, he, oh, well, he will break good. you. Yes. <laughs> the Rocky movies are fun, aren't they? Oh, they're right? fantastic. Uh, I think they're great. My, my brother's a total Rocky fanatic, so much so that when he heard that we had not, I forget it was three or four, we had not seen one, he promptly sent me this full CD collection with the deadline. You know, please let me know when you've completed your assignment to watch them all. And they really are. I mean, they're fun. They're kind of classic. The era we movies. made, we, we dropped, the Rocky Four was the first one. Mm -hmm. And so our kids didn't have the, oh, there was the, a lot of questions. Yeah, a lot of well, questions who's that? about who's that? the who's background. So, right. Yeah, no, you got to try to start from the beginning. Start at the beginning. No, that, that's what we. All right, I'm going to say he was done. a physician. Oh. I'm sorry, he's actually a Fulbright scholar. Is he at MIT? Right. He got that? a master's in chemical engineering, and then after getting that, which is no no small feat, decided to pursue acting. Okay, and went that direction. Still fifty fifty. Congratulations and a strong start. Not bad. And you've seen Rocky Four, which I is have. probably better than that's uh, like a bonus. Many 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 folks. I think would give you two and a half for <laughs> for simply to being able to talk about the All movie. Right. I think is. Uh, is great. Well, congratulations on your performance on the on the quiz. Are there any um, speaking engagements or other things that people listening to this wanted to know more about you, or are there other things you might have coming up that you'd want our listeners to know about? Um, I do not have any speaking engagements scheduled right now. Husqvarna is a great company, and I do think they have. If you go to the website, there are a lot of different ways to see the. It, it really is an incredible history and all the products that were made over time. And they have a couple of videos there that they are three or four minutes yeah. each. And it's, it's they're, they're worthwhile watching. Those. No, it yes. is fun. No, I, I'm impressed at just the breadth of yes. the company. I mean, it just, uh, they really are involved in a lot of different things and I don't think folks know about it. So, and congratulations for ending up there. I'm Thank sure you. That it's always, you know, if you're going to be announced, exciting to be, uh, be at a company kind of dynamic with that kind of history. So, right. so oh, it's good people, good company. Great products. Great. It's, it's been good. Awesome. Well, and I appreciate you coming in today. It's been a pleasure having you as a, as a guest here. Thank you. Um, thank you, folks, for listening. As always, you can also find previous episodes of Bulldog Bites, as well as to subscribe to the podcast by going to wcsr.com backslash podcast. You can also find us on the iTunes or Google Play stores. If you have questions or comments, please share them with us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or you can send me an email. Thank you for listening. Remember, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. Chew carefully.